Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and later on in today's show we're going to be joined by former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Uh, But first and foremost, I'm delighted to have Adam Partridge alongside me on the programme. Adam is the owner of Adam Partridge Auctioneers and Valuers, one of the UK's best-known auctioneers and valuers of antiques and fine art, based in Macclesfield, Cheshire. Um, Adam, very warm welcome to you, and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Scott. Good morning to you. Good morning, Adam. It's a real pleasure having you. The um, reason we're here, of course, is to establish your take on leadership, and considering that this generation of business leaders is probably going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19, of course. I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your business. Well, obviously, it's affected everyone greatly in, in all sorts of different ways. As an auction house with uh, multiple branches across the northwest, obviously, we had to close like everyone else. And during those weeks of lockdown, I, I had a little sort of um, uncertainty in my mind, as I'm sure everyone did, as to uh, the relevance of our business, particularly, you know, who's going to want antiques and collector's items when there's a pandemic on. Surely there are more important things. So I was a little bit down at heart with it. We had a sale room full of items, two and a half thousand lots ready to go. And I didn't know what we were going to do. Um, I started thinking, noticing that other, other sale rooms were starting to do online only. I've always been slightly wary of that because in our business, I think you want to handle it, feel it, even touch and smell all these senses when you, when you see antiques. And I was always a bit um, wary of going online only, even though we've always sold online as well as in real time. But we gave it a go. Um, about six weeks ago, we, we decided to have our first online only auction. Uh, we spread it over four days. And actually, it was the second best auction we've ever had. We had a world record, over 5,000 registered bidders and uh, sold over three quarters of a million pounds. So it was uh, it was very good. And it gave us hope for the future. Since then, we've had a handful of other online sales, which have also been rather successful. So it seems that we've had to move with the times, upgrade our tech, and we've gone online only, as many other people have via these uh, video conferences and things like that. It comes down to adaptability and flexibility, doesn't it? Although it's been a very difficult and a very sensitive time for many, by being flexible, there are some real positives and some real opportunities to take from this, aren't there? You're absolutely right. I mean, I didn't really see the opportunities at the time, but in terms of cost saving, um, we, we used to print a colour catalogue for every sale, for example, Scott, and that would that would cost us about forty or fifty thousand pounds a year that we'd spend on catalogue, sometimes more. Um, obviously, we don't have to print a colour catalogue because there's no one here to come and and purchase one. So it was a massive loss anyway. So firstly, we're saving fifty thousand pounds a year by not having to print catalogues alone. And then there's a further uh, significance there in that we're not um you know printing and using it's it's more environmentally friendly shall i say um with no carbon footprint very low we're in the recycling business anyway really i suppose because we're selling other people's unwanted stuff um so not having to print a catalog not only reflects a, a huge cost saving for us but uh, uh, an, an ecological benefit too 
that's certainly encouraging as well because there's been a real sort of reflection on sustainability during the uh, the lockdown period as well that we've seen and considering that now that you're moving more toward that sort of remote delivery of auctions could you see maybe a return to the way that things were in the future or is it more likely going to be sort of a hybrid approach of the two going forward from here well, it's always been a hybrid approach, really. I set up uh, 10 or 11 years ago, and, and when I set up, having worked at previous companies, the um, online auction, so we, we stream it real-time bidding. So you can click uh, watch our auction and click and bid as it's going on. And we've always done that for every auction. And actually, about 70 or 80% most recently, we're selling online anyway. So it's always been there. It's just we've always had people in the, in the room as well. And it has been a bit of a strange experience to be um, sitting up there on your auctioneer's rostrum um, selling as you normally would, but only to a couple of screens and a couple of phones. Uh, but it's something that we're getting used to. I would like to see a return to um, in-room bidding where people attend auctions, and, and I hope we can achieve that. But if we can't, I don't think it's going to be the end of the world for us. Whereas if you'd have spoken to me a couple of months ago, I'd have had a completely different view on that. I also do property auctions, and um, they've been... I did one last night and that was the second um, attend public open auction that I've done um, since the lockdown. And actually, that was that was a lot harder work. Um, people still don't want to go out and attend these events, I don't think. Um, but so yeah, I'd like to see that um, just simply for a sort of um, showmanship thing, I suppose, that, that we could have a, a live auction again. But if we don't, then that's the way it is. And I think now I'm quite confident that the business will survive and sustain our five or six branches that we've got. Yeah. And with all of these wholesale changes needed to adapt to this new COVID-19 reality, how have the staff at the business really taken to this? Because a big part of leadership is, of course, managing people as well. That's right. And that's often one of the biggest challenges, isn't it? Um, managing the people and, and, of course, the customers. Um, so we, we placed everybody on furlough, bar one person, Emma, who's our financial controller and office manager, and she was there uh, able to answer the phone for anybody worried about what's going on. And, you know, a lot of our customers are often in the later stages of life having downsized or moved to smaller accommodation and and so they they you know some of them could panic what's happened to my stuff is everything going to be all right so you know we have to reassure those customers that you know everything's still running and the money's all safe in the client's account and everyone's going to get paid so we kept just the one person on out of about 20 and then just start, gradually started bringing them back we we started our own little uh, well we called it a cobra team um in deference to the uh, government's uh, Cobra committee and uh, we got together and just started uh, working out how we were going to run the business effectively whilst social distancing and actually once you think about it there's there's a few fairly basic solutions that we managed to come up with so logistics wise you know we used to do pre-valuation days every Monday Tuesday Wednesday and different branches in Altrincham in Liverpool etc obviously we can't do that anymore people can't just turn up and have things valued so we got a, a program online where people can book a specific appointment to see a valuer um, so that sort of works okay and then in terms of managing collections you know different staff obviously here the main the main staff setup would be the office um, then you have your porters and photographers and you have your valuers and your catalogers and then um, and then you have me and, and a couple of others going out on the road doing the home visits and the probate valuations and things like that so we've had to bring them back um Gradually, and uh, in terms of affecting collections, we've we've managed, we, we thought um, bought a marquee 
simple, uh, yeah, 500 quid party tent type marquee. We put it up in our yard outside and divided it into bays. Um, I'm sure, you know, listeners, or you'll be familiar with this. I mean, we had that when we went to buy pet food during lockdown and, and the uh, and the shop said, okay, 10.30 at bay number three. And there you were, you turn up and there'd be your stuff and it would be... Um, it would actually be much easier than going in the shop and, and having to load it all up. So we've sort of done that in terms of uh, arranging collections and it's worked quite effectively. Now we've we've got everyone back off further. The last one came back about three weeks ago. Um, so we're back to full strength. And in fact, we're almost looking at hiring another. So there's a, there's a positive. Mm, that's very positive um, indeed. And one question I'm interested in asking um, as well, Adam, is that when you're in sort of a leadership capacity in business, trying to sort of manage your way through a difficult time such as this, it's only really a natural reaction for employees to look to you for a bit of inspiration, guidance and reassurance when it's needed. But when you are the person running the show and there's nobody really above you to refer to, where is it that you look to for inspiration as and when you require it? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, it's a tricky one. I, before I came and started on my own, I was working for uh, another company, um, which had, which was a partnership, and there were seven partners. And it actually put me off having a partner because they could never get on, and you'd have these partners' meetings, and I'd sit there thinking, you know, it was a bit like uh, being back at school and everybody trying to outdo one another. And it just didn't feel very constructive. And then there have been points when running the business on my own that I've sort of thought, well, at this stage, I really wish I had a partner or someone that I could discuss this with or or, or run things by. So it is quite a lonely a lonely time sometimes um, being the the sole proprietor. But um, my um, my partner in, in, in life, my, my relationship partner, she's been very supportive and actually has proved to be, she's a business person as well, and she's been someone very useful to chat these things through and uh, she works here as our HR manager. So between us, we've managed to sort of uh, lead those through this crisis, especially those that are struggling, some more than others. I mean, some, some of the staff seem completely unaffected by it. And of course, um, as in society, some people have been far more affected than others. So some people need more, more, um, what's the word? <laughs> more encouragement and more support than, mm. than others. So we've, we've managed to cope with it as, as a couple rather than as a sort of uh, formal business in a way. It's, it's, it's still quite a small business, a family business really. My son works here as well. And as I say, we, we have got five branches, but there's only about 20 of us. So it's, um, it's a small family business and we've all sort of stuck together and, and tried to keep people encouraged and, and, uh, and working. And it's worked very well. Everybody seems very positive and adapted to, to work wearing masks and, and um, you know, the, the affecting all the relevant social distancing measures that we need to do, which obviously felt very strange at first. But, but as, as we'll say now, it's, it's feeling like a, a bit more normal now. I remember a few months ago in London seeing someone in a mask thinking, goodness me, um, you know, it's quite a shock to see sometimes someone wearing a mask. And now it's obviously absolutely, absolutely normal. In fact, you, you're unusual if you don't wear one. So uh, they, they've done very well adapting and um, I haven't needed to do a great deal in terms of, of leadership with that. It's more sort of in, uh, mm. uh, reassuring them that their jobs are going to be safe, uh, which perhaps I wouldn't have done with such confidence eight or ten weeks ago. But since since lockdown, we've actually sold uh, one and a half million pounds worth of uh, antiques in the last eight weeks, seven, eight weeks or so. So that is pretty much half our annual turnover normally. I think last year we did three point something million. So it's pretty, pretty encouraging stuff. Obviously, most of the stuff was here already consigned. And that is one of our future challenges now is is to keep the goods coming in 
um, whilst whilst all this is going on. So far, we've managed to cope with that okay. And it's been on some journey, hasn't it, the business? I know, of course, it's only been around for roughly 12 years. Do correct me if I'm uh, wrong on that, of course. But it has featured on some familiar names to one or two viewers um, are listening in today, I'm sure, such as uh, programmes like Flog It, Bargain Hunt, Dickinson's Real Deal, Cash in the Attic. So you're a leading business, if a small one in uh, your region, for sure, I think it's fair to say. Well, yeah, we're, we're uh, in, in business terms, we're a small business, but in auction house terms, we're quite large now. I mean, we're the biggest one in the Northwest. You're quite right. We've benefited a great deal from, from extensive TV exposure. I was one of the Flogger experts for over 15 years, as well as many other programs. And that has given us also a great step up in, in business terms to get to where we are now. Um, we know we've got not just here in Macclesfield, but we've got uh, Manchester, Liverpool, Preston and we've got an office in Torquay and we're, you know, we're looking at expanding further and who knows, maybe becoming almost a nationwide concern. So the, um, the television exposure has been absolutely crucial in getting to where we are today rather quickly as well. And having touched on the uh, the past there, I think it only serves as well that we address the future just before we do wrap things up on the uh, programme today, Adam. Um, we know that over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, we are going to have to adjust to a new way of living and a new way of working until we sort of break free of the COVID-19 shackles. But over that period of time, as we grapple with this new normal, what do you think is next for you and for your business? And what are you really hoping to achieve? Well, I think for the moment, we still need to consolidate. Um I don't know how, you know, I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen in this country or globally with with COVID-19. So at the moment, it's still about consolidating, making sure that everything's running smoothly prior to thinking of further expansion. Um, But um, we're certainly not ruling that out. It's... um, if you'd have spoken to me a month ago, I would have been, it's all about survival and we're going to stick in there and hang in there and keep going. But I'm, I'm a bit more buoyant now. We've had uh, a few auctions and, and sold a, a really good amount of uh, revenue. So um, I'm quite buoyant and we're, we're looking at um, expanding the business further, but uh, nothing too quickly, I don't think, just yet. We just want to keep going and see what see what happens and hopefully hang in there so that when, when we come out of the other side, we're in a position to uh, to continue and expand. Let's certainly hope there'll be some positive news to share on that front for sure, Adam. And I think it would actually be wonderful to catch up in a few months' time and have you back on the show with us just to see how things are coming along in that respect. I'd be delighted to do that, Scott. Yes, thank you very much. It would be a real pleasure for me too, Adam. I've really enjoyed having you uh, join us on the uh, programme today. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on in the world as well. Same to you. All the best. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure, Adam. Thank you. And to all of those listening today as well, I reiterate that message. Do please look after yourselves and others. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, Joining us next on the programme today will be Sir Andrew Strauss, the former England cricket captain. Um, During his playing days, Sir Andrew actually racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history, as well as joining an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia. Since retiring, he has become not only a champion for mental health but also the director of cricket for the england and wales cricket board i hope you all enjoy listening just as much as my colleague jonathan white relished the opportunity to speak with sir andrew and all of that is of course coming up next hello and welcome i'm jonathan white and today we are joined by sir andrew strauss former captain of the england cricket team and former director of cricket at the ecb sir andrew thank you very much for joining us today Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both 
on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things 
being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you Quite. know i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But uh, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm -hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like 
biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that, you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty 
uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so f so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had 
lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in december uh, 2018 uh, i came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know... we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... Uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... a uh, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there. I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day. What an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, 
the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re- uh, wearing red. So what w- what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.